Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is for your glory that we are here. It is for you to be exalted and honored and worshiped. So Jesus, make yourself known. Make yourself exalted. Declare your glory through your word and let your word do its work and change hearts and transform lives. Trust your word that it will do as you set it out to do and accomplish the thing for which you set it out to accomplish. It will not return to you void and it will produce your glory and our satisfaction and joy in you. We declare this and we pray it and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So we as people, just as humans, we worship that which we know. We don't worship something unless we know it's like purpose and it's value. We worship Jesus because we know who he is and we know what he's done and we know the extent of his eternal value. Those who do not worship Jesus don't worship him because they do not know or they do not believe what they have heard about his purpose and his value. So if I told you uh, to worship a guitar, you wouldn't because you know that that guitar doesn't possess enough value for you to invest your entire life into its worship. However, a rock star might worship their guitar. It has much more value to them as it is the means by which they have become a rock star and they know the guitar so well. They can pick up a guitar and play incredible sounds out of it as a form of worship. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who plays a guitar is worshiping the guitar or that every rock star worships their guitar, but a guitarist knows the guitar better and it could be they become therefore susceptible to worshiping something and it's only because they know it well they understand its value and they understand its purpose better than people who don't play the guitar. So it's just an example. So they, this, is, this is a reality about worship that understanding something's potential or someone or something's potential and purpose and value causes us to become susceptible to its worship. You see this with sports teams, right? Uh, people love their sports teams. Some people just love their sport team and it's not worship. Some people take it to the extent of essentially worshiping them. It's easy to worship anything in our lives. The problem is that I think we don't really understand what worship is. We think of worship as like, do you guys remember the movie Major League years ago that came out? And there was that one guy who had the little Buddha guy set up in his locker and incense around it. And he would like do this like oh, thing in front of it before every game. Like we think of that as worship, you know, like bowing down to something, putting an idol up in your house and like, you know, getting on your knees and putting incense around and having candles lit. And that's not worship, typically. I mean, how often do you worship God in that way? Probably mostly on Sundays where it's this physical expression of like bowing down in worship. That's, that's, so worship itself is actually far more subtle. Worship, become, worship is subtle because what we do when we worship is we love something more than anything else. 
And so that shows up in a lot of different ways. The time we invest in it, the amount of thinking we put into it, the money that we invest into it. Those are ways in which we express worship towards things. So worship is vitally important to our lives. If I were to tell you that you ought to worship Jesus, you would need to know his purpose and his value. And and we discover his purpose and his value by understanding who he is and what he's done. And that is my agenda at the pulpit. That's my agenda when I preach you. That's my purpose and my goal is to show you what God is like in Christ, to show you what Jesus is like. So that the product of your new understanding or heightened or developed understanding of Jesus would produce in you love, affection, and desire, and worship of him. And so instead of telling you to stop worshiping other things, what I want to do is show you how beautiful Jesus is. And in that, my hope, and I believe this, is that he will replace in your worship anything else that's there. So instead of telling you stop worshiping this, I'm gonna tell you start worshiping him. And as you do, and as you begin to understand him and know him better, and he becomes a greater source of worship to you as as he fills your heart, then I think what will ultimately happen is those other things in our lives that we give way too much importance to will begin to either fade if they're sin or they will find their rightful place. For example, a guitar, or your favorite sports team. Is it wrong to uh, cheer for your favorite sports team? No. Is it wrong to be excellent at a guitar or be in a band? Of course not. We literally have one in our church, right? So it's not wrong, but those things need to find their rightful place. It reminds me of what Jesus says in John 6. I think John 6, 33 and 34, where he says, um, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Meaning like prioritize Jesus first. Prioritize God and his kingdom first and then everything else will be provided for you appropriately as you need. So it's all about prioritizing our worship. And if we're gonna prioritize Jesus in our worship, we have to know him. And that's what today's text is really centered on. Who Jesus is And the product of believing who he is should produce in us worship. And today's text, Colossians 1.15, the second half of Colossians 1.15, this text is centered on and surrounded all around one word. And that word is firstborn in Colossians 1.15. So here's what we're going to do. First, I'm going to tell you what firstborn does not mean. Then I'm going to tell you what it does mean. And then I'm going to tell you what it means for you today. So we're in Colossians 1.15 and Paul writes, He is the firstborn of all creation. So the first thing we need to clarify is what the word firstborn does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus is a created being, as in the first creation made, the firstborn of all creation, as in before God created anything, first he created, and the, the ancient argument for this position would not, they wouldn't say created, they would say begotten, that God the Father had begotten or created the Son first, and then from the Son, some believe that then the son was part of helping with creation, but he's also a part of creation, or that he didn't help with creation, but he was the first creation. 
And so there's, there's this reality in this, from this text, that, that people throughout history for thousands of years since Christ have used this verse as a means to proclaim a false teaching and a heresy that Jesus is not the eternal God, that he was born of God, that there was a beginning to the Son of God. And what they take from him is his deity. This was first per, uh, perpetuated by a guy named Arius back in 325 AD. This is just a couple hundred years after Jesus. This is the early church father times when the churches were having councils of bishops and um, these, there were Romans involved in it too and there were kings involved in it and they would have these meetings where they would discuss doctrine and decide what is true biblical doctrine and what is not. So Arius shows up at this first council of Nicaea in 325 AD and declares, and declares the removal of the full deity of Christ by saying that Jesus is not fully God because he's not eternal like God the Father, but rather that he's this created product of God the Father. Now this heresy, though it's ancient, is still around today. It still exists today in a false religion that we call the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is, the, this is their go-to text about Jesus. They use this very verse, Colossians 1.15, to say that Jesus is not fully God, but a later creation, thus removing the full deity of Christ, which Paul counters. He countered earlier in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. And then we'll even elaborate on later in verse 19, when he says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This heresy called Arianism misses two things. One, it misses John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's talking about Christ. He was in the beginning with God, and in the beginning he was God. So he's giving Jesus full deity. In this text. And just to be sure we know we're talking about Jesus, he says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this heresy misses the clear declaration here in this verse that Jesus is eternal and that Jesus is fully God and that Jesus is also fully man. Now, the second thing that this heresy misses is context. The context of Colossians 1, 15 through 17 exalts Jesus as the God who created all things. I don't know if you guys have ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door. Um, they've knocked on mine. And they came back because we had a nice little discussion about this verse. Because they knocked on my door. I knew exactly who they were. And I said to them, before we get started, let me just clarify some things. I know the Bible well enough to have a discussion with you. And I know what you believe well enough to tell you that we don't agree. And what we don't agree on is who Jesus is. Because that's, that's more important than anything. If we can't get Jesus right, we're not on the same page. It's the same problem with Mormonism. Is that their belief is, they would tell you Jesus is great and Jesus is a prophet. They give Jesus a lot of props. They tell you your Bible's good, but they add to it. And they take from Christ. And so, 
They would, they would be cool with talking about Jesus, but it's not the same guy. And so I'm talking to these Jehovah's Witnesses and I tell them the issue that we have is that we don't believe in the same God because my God is Jesus, who's fully God and fully man. And they went, well, Colossians 1.15 says, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> and we had a nice little discussion and they said, can we come back next week? Meaning, can I bring someone who knows the Bible better than me back next week? And they did. And it was a hearty conversation. So um, what I do know also is I live across the street from another pastor. I said, you know who you should go talk to? That guy. (laughs) He needs to hear this. You should go tell him. Um, And then that pastor told them not to come back to our neighborhood. (laughs) I know a pastor who once said... um, you know how Jehovah's Witnesses or you know whatever, uh, Mormons even, will come to your door and knock on your door. He said, I will go up to them. When they come up to my door, I will tell them, you are spreading a false gospel around a neighborhood that I live in. So if you decide that you're going to continue to go from house to house to share your false gospel with people, I'm following you. And I'm going to go to every door with you. And I'm going to argue for the true gospel at every door so you don't spread that heresy in our neighborhood. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. (laughs) And then I listened to John Piper say something once that was very profound to me. Um, And I tried this and it was amazing that it works. I'm getting a little off topic here, but I just feel like this is a really cool story. (laughs) Um, So when I lived in Montana, in Miles City, Montana, there's a huge Mormon church with a huge Mormon following. Um, this is where Christian has lived for a majority of his life. And that's where I met him. And we were just talking about this last night. And what he said is, Miles City is very dark. And it is. And I think Mormonism is a, a big part of that because there's a false gospel being spread there. And I do think it's demonic. So I was listening to John Piper talk about when these other religious beliefs show up at your door and what he did. And he said, what I do is I start off by telling these people, before we say anything, let's pray. So it's an interesting approach. So I was in Miles City. It was my first year there. And these two young men in black pants and a white button-up shirt with little badges that say their name and it says Elder John and Elder Dave or whatever. Um, They're Mormons, these young missionary Mormons, and they wanted to talk to me. And I've got two little boys running around in diapers behind me, and I'm trying to have this conversation with these guys. So I'm like, here's what we're going to do, guys. I know what you believe. (laughs) I know what I believe. And I know we don't agree on Jesus. Same conversation every time. So here's what I said, and I followed John Piper's lead. And I told them, before we even talk about anything, let's pray. Are you guys okay with that? And they said, yeah. So we prayed. And I said, but I want to pray first. I didn't say this out loud, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, because I want to invite my God before you invite yours. And so I prayed first. And I've got to tell you, it was not a profound prayer. It wasn't like the Oh, it wasn't just some like earth shattering prayer then, you know, and then they fell on their knees and they're like, you're right, Jesus is king. It wasn't anything dramatic like that. But these guys came to share their, what they believe is a true gospel, but to bring their false gospel to my house. And all I did was pray. And I invited Jesus 
Those are the words I use. Jesus, come to this moment and show us the truth. Be a real God. It was those things like really be real and show up. And when I got done praying, I said, okay, you guys can pray if you'd like. And they both did this. They stepped back a little bit and they're like, you know what? I I think we're good. We're going to go. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) Um, And then I thought to myself, should I follow him around and tell him? (laughs) Oh, if you're going to go next door, I'm coming with you. And we'll do this prayer at every door. If I didn't have two little kids in diapers in my house, maybe. But I say all that just to clarify that there, are, there is plenty of false gospel in our communities and in our world. And, the, and how we combat false gospels is not by running around criticizing and declaring like, oh, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. I mean, I can do that here from the pulpit to teach you informationally about what those doctrines and what those false gospels and what those false religions are teaching. But our priority is not to bash others, but to exalt Christ. And that's how Paul handles the heresy in Colossae, the heresy of Gnosticism, which was filling the churches in Asia Minor. And, And Paul doesn't just go, oh, Gnosticism's bad. Gnosticism's bad. They believe this and they believe that. He doesn't even really address it that much. All he does is he addresses their false doctrines with the counter doctrine of truth. And so that's our approach is to exalt Christ, to learn about Jesus, to know who he is and know what he's like. And for the world who doesn't know Christ, we declare who he is to them so that they would believe. But to you here this morning who do know Christ, who do believe, this is to teach you more about him so that in your heart you would worship him. The context of these few verses, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, are all about Jesus as creator. And so this idea of him being creator creates this logical reality that if he's creator, he can't himself be a creation. He is logically as creator before all things. And Paul writes in the next verse, verse 16, for by him, all things were created. So how can he create all things if he himself was created? So he cannot create himself. So if he was created, then he did not create all things. So context is vitally important to understanding that Jesus being the firstborn of all creation does not mean that he himself is a creation. So then what does firstborn mean? The word firstborn in the Greek literally means first in rank or first in honor or essentially first in position. Or a more precise word for firstborn that Paul says in verse 18 is preeminent, which means first place. And that's, that's what it means about Jesus. That's who Christ is, supreme and superior to all things in creation because they are created by his hand. Now, the Greek word for firstborn, which is, and you don't have to know this, but sometimes I like If I were sitting there listening, I would want to know the Greek word, and I assume you do too, right? Okay, good. So the Greek word is prototokos. So remember that, write it down, prototokos. And it can mean, it can refer to a firstborn child, like physically born as the first child to a family, but it primarily refers to superior rank and position. Now, we got to understand the context of the time too. 
Paul writes this text to Christians who are both Jewish and non-Jewish. And the culture in which these people lived was Roman. So Roman culture, but the prevailing cultural impact in the time was Greek. Which is why everyone spoke Greek and most of the New Testament was written in Greek. And that historical context is important because in both the Jewish culture and the Greek culture, meaning everyone who read Paul's letter, whether Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, anyone or Roman, whoever, whoever read this letter in their cultural context would have understood this word firstborn to refer primarily to rank and position and not to birth order. So the original readers of this text would have saw firstborn of all creation and understood, oh, he's the most important thing. That he is the, not just in first place and rank, but as we'll see here also, that it is more than just rank, but it is inheritance. That he is the first to receive the fullness of the inheritance of all creation. So the use of the word firstborn in referring to rank has that Importance, but it has that other dynamic that is not just that he's the most honored, but that the firstborn is a phrase used in Greek and Jewish culture to declare that this person has the birthright to the family. They are of first rank in the family, and they therefore will be the ones who receive the family's inheritance. And that is the point that Paul is getting to in this text, that Jesus is the inheritor the firstborn child to inherit the fullness of God's kingdom, to inherit all of creation. And to further validate this firstborn meaning of highest rank or inheritance, there are many scriptures where the word firstborn is used to declare or highlight this rank or this honor or this first place that are not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. This is not a a new idea to Paul or to any of the New Testament authors. In Exodus 4.22, God says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what God says to Pharaoh is actually clever wordplay. He says to Pharaoh that if he does not let his firstborn go, then he will kill Egypt's firstborn. Now, the cleverness of this wordplay is that the word firstborn for Israel refers to their rank and their inheritance in God's eyes as his most honored possession. But then he uses the same word firstborn to change the meaning for Egypt where he's saying, I will literally kill the child who was born first to your family. And so this is not a new concept to, call, to talk about firstborn as having rank. And it's also not a new concept. In the Old Testament, there is also references to the Messiah being the firstborn. So this idea of firstborn referring to rank and inheritance is not new. And it's also not new to it being a reference to Jesus or the Messiah. In Psalm 89, 27, it says, And I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So you notice there that he says firstborn and then gives us a definition 
of this meaning of firstborn, highest of the kings of earth, referring to firstborn as rank, highest rank. He will rule all of creation. And Psalm 89 is a messianic psalm, meaning it's about the Messiah. So this is a futuristic psalm. It's a psalm about David. And oftentimes in the the Old Testament where we find texts that are about David, that are actually not fulfilled in David or in David's time, but are fulfilled in Christ, where the throne of David or the position of David or the kingship of David is used as a shadow of which Christ becomes the substance. Because in verse 29 of Psalm 89, so just two verses later, he says, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heaven, of the heavens. So David's lineage cannot and has not fulfilled this promise in the flesh because the throne of David is still is not ruling right now. And in the Old Testament, as God fulfills things through, talks about David, but is actually a fulfillment in Christ. What we see here is that Christ is the fulfillment of these Davidic promises. And this Psalm 89 is actually a reference to Christ. So it is Christ who will have offspring forever and his thrones as the days of the heavens. That's a reference to Jesus, which means that I will make him my firstborn is a reference to Jesus. And he will be the highest of the kings of the earth. Meaning long before Paul called Jesus the firstborn, God was already calling his eternal son the firstborn to elevate the father's declaration that the Messiah will be of the highest rank, will receive the full inheritance of all creation for what he has done on the cross and what he has done in and through and out of the grave, and he will receive the greatest honor and the most glory. If Jesus being the firstborn is only a reference to his birth order, or if it means that the Son of God was created and is not eternal, then what we will have is a serious problem in one of our favorite Bible verses ever declared. It's the same Bible verse you see on giant posters at football games. You guys know what verse I'm talking about? John 3.16. With John 3.16, which we all know so well, children know John 3.16. Are there any kids here who know John 3.16 by heart? You guys want to say it out loud? No? All right. I totally understand. You guys want to do it? Do you want to do it? Do it. Do it. That whoever believes in him may not perish and have eternal life. Good job. Good job, Carter. Step up, man. That takes guts. I'm proud of you, dude. So John 3.16, very popular verse. We all know it. We've got a real problem with John 3.16. If Jesus is not eternal. If this word firstborn is referring to his birth order and not to his supremacy or his preeminence. Or his eternal nature as the inheritor of all creation. Because what it says in John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now the Greek word for only son is monogenes, which means one and only or unique. So for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, or he gave his unique son. If firstborn refers to birth order, then that would mean that Jesus was the first to be born and that if he's the first, 
then that would naturally and logically and reasonably mean that there would be more who would be born after him into the same class, who would be born just like him. Yet in John 3, 16, we're told that Jesus is monogenous or that Jesus is the only son or the unique son, meaning there are no others like him. There is no one else to be born into his class or into his rank or position, thus removing this idea that firstborn is referring to birth order because there are no others who come after him in his class. So it wouldn't be firstborn, it would be only born if we were talking about birth order. Or there's an early church father named Theodoret who contemplated this idea and he said it like this in the form of a question. If Christ was only begotten, could he be first begotten? And how, if he were first begotten, could he be only begotten? How could he be the first of many in his class and at the same time the only member of his class? He can't. Meaning Jesus cannot be the first created of a particular class of people because he's unique. He's the only one in his class and he alone carries the unique rank and position as preeminent, superior, supreme, and most glorified. So... Why does Paul declare the supreme and superior nature of Jesus? It's because of Gnosticism. He has to talk about this. The the, the situation in Colossae demands that Paul address the nature of Jesus because the Gnostics were teaching a false gospel and a heresy that Jesus was just one of thousands of emanations that came from the real God. So basically, Jesus was just the first rung on a ladder that you had to climb up the ladder to better and better and better gods who were more and more like the true God until you got to the finally got to the one true, pure and holy God. And as you climb the ladder of rank of false gods, that every, God, every little maybe mini God or demigod or emanation of the one true God was holier and holier and holier. And you had to climb that ladder of holiness. That's legalism. That's just, that's just the law wrapped up in a new outfit. You have to basically climb the ladder of goodness, being holier and holier and holier as you climb that ladder. And if, you're, if you can climb high enough, you can get to the one true God. It starts with Jesus, but he's not the end. Well, the gospel tells us something completely different. In fact, Jesus himself says something completely different. In John chapter 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way. It doesn't say I am a way. I am one of many ways. I am a roundabout kind of opportunity for you to get to God. I am the first rung on the ladder. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That article, the, before way, truth, and life is supremely important. That he is not saying, I'm a way or a truth or a life. But he's the only way and the only truth and the only way to have life. Because life only comes in the Father and you can only get the Father through the Son. So Paul picks up where Jesus left off and clarifies this doctrine of Jesus being the only means of salvation by declaring his superiority and his supremacy by calling him the firstborn of creation to combat that heresy that the Gnostics were teaching in the Colossian church. 
And today, we pick up where Paul left off as we combat Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who knock on our doors on Saturday afternoons. So that's, that's the, the information. That's, the, that's the, the info that I'm teaching you. That's the doctrinal perspective. And there's much more to this than what I've already said. But that's the stuff I want you to download in your brain. But I don't want it just to be in your brain. I want this to be your life. Because the question is, if I know this information about Jesus, if I know this particular thing about Christ, that he is the sole inheritor of all of creation, that he is the highest rank, superior and supreme to the angels and to everything else, to everything on earth, to all people, that he's not an emanation of the one true God, but that he is the one true God himself. If that information gets downloaded in your brain, what should it do? What should it produce? What should be the product? What does this mean to you? How does this truth impact our hearts and our lives and our behavior and our actions and our feelings and our attitudes? So I'm gonna give you two things, two impacts of the preeminence and the, and the firstborn inheritance and nature of Christ. Number one, inheritance. What does this benefit you? Inheritance. So Christ himself here is broadcasted, is declared as the one true God who will receive the fullness of all creation. It's his, he's earned it. So this is why like when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, in the wilderness, and he brings Jesus really high up, and he says, look at all the kingdoms. These are yours. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. And Jesus is like, dude, I made this. Like, don't tell me that I can have what I've made. I know what I'm doing, right? Like, I'm going to get all this, but first I have to be obedient to my Father. I have to fulfill the Father's will, and that means I have to die on a cross and sacrifice my life for the people whom I love. That has to happen first, before I can fulfill my calling as the firstborn of all creation. This text that Paul is declaring in Colossians 1.15, the second half here, is exactly what Satan was attacking. He was attacking the firstborn of all creation, that aspect of his nature. He was trying to get Jesus to skip the cross so that his inheritance would be lame. Because if Jesus skips the cross and doesn't die for your sins, he doesn't inherit all of creation. And so, is it a surprise to us that Satan would tempt Jesus to skip the cross and that his attack would be at the inheriting, in the, in the inheriting nature of Jesus? That what he must do is die for our sins and rise from the grave so that he can inherit or fulfill being the firstborn of all creation. Is, is it a surprise to us that if he would attack Jesus himself with that very temptation, that he would have no problem, that Satan would have no problem attacking us with it? Of course he will. That is why I'm not surprised that there are Jehovah's Witnesses, that there is Arianism, that there is Gnosticism, and that there are Mormons who believe in a false God and teach false doctrines and teach and preach a false gospel and that all of those falsenesses are hinged on and centered on this reality that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That that is their attack. His nature, 
his preeminence, his superiority, his supremacy, his, his kingship. And, and, and because of all those things, he is the one who has earned all of creation as his. So it's no surprise that they would t- attack the eternal deity of Christ as it means to strip from people the, their inheritance in Christ. And that's the point here is that we get the inheritance that Christ gets. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The spirit himself bears witness. That's the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what are we? Paul says, we're heirs. Well, define our heirship a little bit for me more, a little bit more for me, Paul. He says, okay, heirs of God. And that means fellow heirs with Christ. Everybody who believes in the false gospel and these false doctrines and these false religions are not heirs with Christ. And what they will miss is the inheritance. And what we get, the impact of Jesus being the preeminent God who is the firstborn of all creation, the highest rank and of highest honor and of highest position, has earned for himself the inheritance that is everything. That he rules over all things. And he will inherit the fullness of God's kingdom and the fullness of God's creation as he destroys this world, destroys his creation, and creates a new one that he will inherit and own and rule and run and reign over. And we are heirs with him. We receive the fullness of this inheritance ourselves. So it's not a surprise that the very thing we look forward to, ruling with Christ, and receiving the, the honor and the reward of his righteousness, we get the inheritance. It's not a surprise to me that that is what Satan would attack. That there would be multiple false religions, false beliefs, and false gospels that hit right at the heart of what we receive with the righteousness of Christ, which is the fullness of all things that God has created, that Christ has created. And now... We get this inheritance when we attach ourselves to Christ in faith. When we believe in him. When we, as John chapter 1 says, when we receive him as our savior. We get this gift that ties us to him eternally and we receive the fullness of his inheritance with him. So the question then is, what should such a blessing produce in us? And that's number two. Worship. The second impact of the preeminent, supreme, and superior nature of Jesus should be our worship. If this is who he truly is, then he is Lord of all, King of kings, Lord of lords, God of the universe, creator of all things. And what does it look like when we worship something other than ourselves? I'll show you. This isn't on the PowerPoint. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is what it looks like. 
when you don't know who Jesus is, when you don't know what he's like, when you don't believe in him, when you don't understand him, his purpose or his value, when you don't have faith in him, when you're not an inheritor, this is what your worship looks like. Because we all worship something, whether we're believers or not, we're worshiping something. And this is what it looks like when we're worshiping something that isn't Jesus. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his, in, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. I'm in Romans 1, now. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images rep- resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see what they're doing? They are worshiping the creation instead of the creator. So what does God do? Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And he goes on to describe the details of what that worship turns into practically in people's lives. And what it is essentially is an absolute and utter perversion of the natural order. That's worship if it's not Jesus. And it's so bad, God says, they are without excuse. And they will be condemned, which you see at the end of that chapter. So, Worship matters. Worship matters significantly. The primary problem with Gnosticism and Arianism and Jehovah's Witnesses is that they do not worship the one true God. They have a false God, and therefore, they worship a false God. And they might have a false God who uses the name Jesus or call, they say, his, oh, he's God, or he's, his name is Jesus, but, but it's not the one true God or the one true Jesus whom they worship. And nothing could be more important than the reality of worship. Imagine worshiping your God your entire life. And then when you die, you stand before the one true God and realize that you've been worshiping a false God your entire life. And the results are eternally damning. Worship matters more than anything else in our life. That which you love the most will be that which you worship. Music, food, television, sports, another person, spouse, your children, your family, your job. Hunting, extracurricular activities, snowmobiling, all kinds of things. Are any of those things bad? No. Can we do those things? Yeah. Why? Because God gave them to you for a purpose, for a reason, that it would be something that you enjoy as a means to worship him. It is a gift and a blessing from God to hunt. It is a gift and a blessing from God to have enough money to buy a snowmobile, to have a television that you can watch your favorite sports team, to have a family whom you love, to have children that you can raise up into godliness. Instead, what we do as people is we pervert those blessings and those gifts and we make them idols and gods and we worship them. And we would never say we worship them because we don't do what the guy in the movie Major League did. We don't build an altar to our children and bow down and worship them. 
Sort of like, I don't worship my children. But they run your life. And that's worship. So, worship is vitally important. And like I said, we have to prioritize Christ in our worship. I don't worship my wife. I love my wife more than any other human in this universe, but I don't worship her. And that's best for her. Because if I worship Jesus instead, my wife is going to get the best of her husband. So the biggest benefit to my wife is that I worship Jesus more than her. My children need me as their father. But you know what they need more than me as their father? They need their father to be a worshiper of Jesus. That's what they need. They need an example. They need a teacher. They need someone who prays over them and for them and to them. They need someone who teaches them the Bible. They need somebody who picks them up off the ground when they fall and scrape their knee. They need a dad who comforts them. They need a father who disciplines them. They need someone who speaks truth into their life. They need someone who corrects their bad behavior. They need someone who teaches them what it's like to be a man, to be a gentleman, to be a husband, to be a father. They need someone to tell them, take a shower, dude, you stink, right? (laughs) They need someone to say, you know, wash your own clothes. Learn how to take care of things around the house. This is how you build a chair. They need a man. They need a dad to do those things. They need a dad to take them hunting and say, this is how you shoot a gun. This is how you get a deer. This is how you ride a snowmobile. This is how you drive a four-wheeler. This is how you drive a car, son or daughter. I talk about boys because I only have boys, but it applies across the board. Right? And, and daughters need that too. They need a father who says, this is what it looks like to be a man of God. I want to be the kind of man that you look to marry, daughter. I want to be the kind of man that loves Jesus, that shows you that there is, you don't need a Christian man. I, have, I, I do a lot of counseling with, with women where we have conversations about Single women who are, are looking for a man. And oftentimes what I tell a single woman who's looking for a husband is stop. First of all, start looking for a Christian man. And the moment you get that in your mind that you have to look for a Christian man, stop thinking I need a Christian man and start looking for a man who loves Jesus. Because you don't need a Christian man who goes to church whenever it's convenient or does some basically doesn't do any godly discipline. That's not what women need. That's not what Christian women need. They need a godly man who loves Jesus, pursues Jesus, desires Jesus, talks about Jesus, you know, reads about Jesus, and obeys Jesus, and follows Jesus, and wants to lead you to Jesus. That's the kind of man that the, our daughters need. And that's the kind of man our sons need to be. They need a good father to do those things. They have to have a good father who does those things. Meaning. Do you need to answer that? (laughs) Just teasing. Just teasing. It's okay. Sorry, I'm easily distracted, obviously. So, um, I say all this to get to a point, which is, men, worship starts with you. Worship starts with you. I will, I'm willing to admit, I'm willing to stand at the pulpit and admit when I see my wife do things that I look at and I go, I don't like that in her. I don't like that behavior. 
it's not necessarily a sin or maybe there is a particular sin that she might do. Maybe she doesn't notice. But it's a behavior that I see and I go, ah, I don't like that. It's very easy for me to draw a connection between her behavior and my example. And I look at that behavior in my wife and I go, that is on me. All of it. Who she is in Christ is my responsibility. How she behaves is on me. I'm the example setter. I'm the standard. I'm the one in my family who has to set the ideal of what godliness and righteousness looks like. Men, that's our job. To our wives, to our sons, and to our daughters. We must worship Jesus. Or we cannot expect our wives and our children to. Now, if you are a man who has not done that yet, or not as well as you maybe you want to, and you are blessed enough to have a wife who still loves Jesus and worships him, you better be thankful to God that he has now given you the chance to step up and be that man. And don't worry about the past. Maybe you haven't been that man yet. Whatever. Can't fix the past, guys. Time to move forward. What is the Wisconsin state motto? Forward, right? <laughs> you live in Wisconsin. Well, most of you do. Some of you might you know, live in Minnesota. Whatever. You're in Wisconsin now, so forward, right? That's our motto, men. Forward. From here on forward, we worship Jesus. We read, study, pray, disciple, learn, grow. That's our job. We worship the Son of God who is the firstborn of all creation. So we would receive that inheritance and lead our families to that inheritance too. The church is family. The church is a family. And the church is made up of families. That's why family is so important. And that's why men, your responsibility, is so important in your family. Because how this church, Grace Church in Osceola, Wisconsin, moves forward is dependent on the men in this room and how they lead their families, period. That's a fact. With dads and husbands who don't worship Jesus, this church will go as you go. The elders have a responsibility to set that example for the men and for everyone else. And the men in this church, the husbands and fathers, have the responsibility to pick up that mantle and carry the cross of Jesus Christ. To lay aside their life and be like Christ. And that means dads, husbands, fathers, sacrificially loving your family, even if it means you die. So the question really is, are you living a daily life of such worship that if you were to, put, to be put into a position that you had to sacrifice your life for his honor, would you? Are you so practiced at worshiping Jesus that to give up your life, that degree of sacrifice would not be a huge leap for you? Because if you live a life that isn't sacrificially loving Jesus, which would show up in you sacrificially loving your wife and your family, that's what it would look like. So I can tell you, how you worship Jesus by the way you love your family, husbands, men. How you love your wife, how you treat your wife, how you listen to your wife, how you speak to your wife, how you give to your wife, how you sacrificially give up things for your wife and to your wife and do things for your wife. And how you do that with her tells me everything I know, need to know about your relationship with Jesus. 
Period. Do you practice worshiping Jesus to such an extent that is so sacrificial that if your life was on the line and you had to die for Jesus to fulfill that next step in worship, if that was what it cost you, your life, that that step would be a one step forward. That's the most natural next step in your life. Or are you so far from sacrificially loving and worshiping Jesus that the idea of dying for him would be such a massive leap of faith you don't know if you could do it? Because you don't practice the regular daily habit of loving and worshiping Jesus. That's the question. Are you taking steps today, building habits, creating godly disciplines that get you one step closer? And that means today, men, today, we find ways to sacrifice for our wives. The other day, we were downstairs at my house watching a TV show or a movie with my boys. So me, my wife, and my three boys watching a show. And um, I brought down, or one of my boys brought down Oreos. Um, White chocolate covered Oreos, to be specific, uh, delicious if you haven't tried them. And me and my three boys consumed the entire box. So we ate all those. My wife's like, I bought gluten free Oreos. And she's like, man, I wish I had them with you sitting down on the couch, like lounging back. She's like, oh, I wish I had my gluten free Oreos. So I was sitting there thinking to myself, if I want to love my wife well right now, I should go get her Oreos for her. So I sat there and thought about it for like minutes. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, should I? I mean, she's fine without it. She doesn't need gluten-free Oreos. Like trying to tell myself like, nah, I don't need to get up and do it. And I did. I went upstairs. I got the Oreos and brought them. She's like, oh, thank you, husband. And I'm like, okay, that was sacrificial, right? I mean, I wanted to sit down and relax, okay? And instead I got up and I walked five steps to the stairs. I took six steps up the stairs. I walked another eight steps to the, to the cabinet, grabbed, actually they're on the counter, four steps to the counter, picked them up, walked back downstairs. And I sat down like, oh, loving you is so hard. No, I didn't really say that. But we act that way, don't we? are like, oh, I have to do this for you. Listen. I don't like doing laundry. Actually, I do a little bit. <laughs> it is very pleasing to see folded clothes all organized. And I know, I do know that in my family, I am the best at organizing folded clothes. But um, I don't like doing laundry. And I know most men probably, you know, I would say statistically, most men probably don't do the laundry in their home. But I do most of the laundry in our house. I like doing it and I do it so that my wife doesn't have to. And I could very well say, wife, this is your responsibility in our home. But I'm not going to say that to her. So I, and, and, and trust me, she does everything else around the house. So I'm like, if I can relieve her of this one thing, and on my day off, I sit down in front of the TV, and I watch my favorite sports talk show, and I fold laundry. Or I turn my little Bible on, and I have the guy read the Bible to me, and I fold laundry. That's a simple thing. It's a little sacrificial, because I'd rather not do it. But I, my, my point is, not, I'm not trying to praise myself and make myself the hero of these stories. Because the sacrifices I'm telling you about are so tiny. But that's my point. 
What do you, guys, what is the one little thing you could do for your wife or for your kids just to sacrificially love them? Let's take steps towards sacrificial loving so that we get to a point where we can start feeling more and more comfortable with if my life has to be given up to save my wife or children, it's a no-brainer and it's an easy step because I'm already close. What you practice as worship today will determine how you worship him when your life is on the line. And though you probably think that you will never have to sacrifice your physical life for Jesus, because we live in a culture that does not demand such a sacrifice. Just remember that though our culture may never ask for your life, Jesus does. Faithful worship requires knowing who Jesus is and what he's like. So how well do you know him? And more importantly, what are you doing to know him better? And men, what are we doing to know him better so we can be a better example, better leaders, more godly men, faithful followers, and sacrificial lovers of our families and of our Lord Jesus? Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. We love you. You're so good to us. We, we don't even deserve to worship you. And worship itself feels like such an honor that we get to sing your songs, that we get to sing them because we know these truths and we believe them. And we get to hark what the angels declare, that Christ is born and that he lived a perfect life and that he's righteous and that he's good and that he's our savior. That his life was sacrificed for ours so we could believe and have faith in him and spend eternity in, in the inheritance he has earned for us. So let the firstborn of creation reign in our hearts and be the firstborn in our hearts and be the preeminent, superior, and supreme God of our minds and of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.